please be seated. In the uh, midst of inspiration, I had thought about focusing on the passage from Numbers as a reason why not to complain at cafes uh, about the service and about the food. Uh, but I decided to go with the gospel passage this morning. So on September the 20th, 2001, the then, the then worst US president, George W. Bush, no longer the worst US president, gave a speech in both houses of Congress. He gave a speech, and I remember watching it, to the American people, to the world, and he said the following words, Every nation and every region now has a decision to make. Either you are with us, or you are with the terrorists. The United States has stuck pretty closely to those words uh, for the last couple of decades. And that's now called the Bush Disjunction. And hearing it again, it's possible that you scoff remembering what George W. Bush was like, his apparent simplicity uh, and his apparent stupidity. It's also possible you're slightly horrified recalling that from that policy, uh, from those words, came the death of hundreds of thousands of people throughout the world and an increase in terrorism worldwide. It's unlikely that in hearing it again, you think of our church and of the church worldwide. The thing is that the modern church, sorry, that the church has embraced the Bush, the Bush disjunction for over a thousand years before George W. Bush ever thought of it. The original name in the church for the Bush disjunction would have been the Crusades. Uh, the then branding was refreshed another 500 years later, and it became known as the Reformation. And post-Reformation, we've had about 500 years of consistently implementing something very similar to the Bush disjunction uh, in the delivery and communication of Christian faith throughout the world. Ours sounds a little different. It would start with every nation and every region now has a decision to make, but it's do you accept Jesus as your Lord and Saviour? The question implies conversion as a movement that goes away from one world into another, away from one worldview into another worldview, like a pendulum swinging. And whatever the original worldview, it needs to be discarded for this new worldview that the church uh, and its followers have brought to you. So one day you're a non-believer, a heathen, unsaved, one of the goats potentially. The next you're a sheep, you're saved, you're one of the elect. Now chapter 3 of the Gospel of John here seems to affirm that Jesus himself expected a pendulum-like conversion. Some of the statements in there, whoever believes in him may have eternal life, which implies whoever doesn't, doesn't. Everyone who believes in him may not perish, but may have eternal life. Those who believe in him are not condemned, but those who do not believe are condemned already. For all who do evil hate the light and do not come to the light. The part of the feeling that Jesus is being extremely black and white here is more about how we see conversion today than what's actually written in John. We generally see conversion as a point in time, an event that's been triggered by a personal decision. 
for me that was quite literally an event, a point in time. I did the prayer in the back of the Radio Rima Word for Today magazine, and I went back to bed, and Joe goes, what were you doing? I said, I'm a Christian now. She goes, oh, that's good. So, you know, it was quite literal. That was the, my understanding of what I meant to be converted. That was it. You make that decision, there you go. Now, Beverly Gaventa is a woman who writes about conversion, and she says, she calls the pendulum-like conversion, as I said, where the past is rejected for something that's newly chosen. But what's newly chosen in a pendulum-like conversion is a religious system. So it's moving from one way of doing life to a new way of doing life. And it's so common in our society and in our church that you could probably be excused for believing that conversions in the Bible probably follow this pattern. But that's really wrong. What Gaventer identifies is two other types of conversion that are far more common. The first one's a word called alternation. And alternation is where conversion develops quite naturally. So think of kids who are raised in Christian homes. As we know, if you're raised in a Christian home, you're more likely to make some kind of Christian commitment throughout your life. That's alternation, that kind of natural development of faith. Uh, And finally, and what I want to focus on today, is transformation, which is a person doesn't reject their past faith, their past experiences, their way of doing life, but they add to it, they grow it, they refresh it with this new experience of Christianity. So Christianity comes in like the salt, like the yeast, and it infuses what's already there rather than tossing it out. So consider these well-known examples before we get to John. John the Baptist, of course, he calls for repentance, but he never offers an alternate religious system. And what he calls for is a transformation of thought and of deed. The other one, of course, is after Saul's conversion on the road to Damascus, as Paul, he continues to assert that he's a Jew, that he's committed to the traditions of Israel, and he calls people for a new understanding of Jesus as the Christ, rather than demanding they adopt a new religious system. Then finally consider Jesus' parables as kind of a, as a corpus. They tend to call for radical transformation of thought and deed, rather than asking people to adopt a new religious system. So then we must think, well, why did it sound like John suddenly go off script and appear to push the conversion to a new system rather than a transformation of of thought and deed? Well, that description is a disservice to what's written in the Gospel today. Jesus isn't talking about conversion of non-believers. He's talking about the dry, safe little world that believers, that religious people, can build around themselves so that God can't get to them. So the first half of this third chapter is Jesus' secret night meeting with Nicodemus. When someone's meeting with you secretly at night, then you're probably not a very publicly uh, uh, publicly uh, uh, popular person. Um, and so when Nicodemus is meeting with him, the reason he's meeting with him at night is, of course, he's a leader of the Pharisees. And Jesus has had a lot of well-known stouches, debates with the Pharisees over this period. But who were the Pharisees? We often get the impression the Pharisees were probably Jesus' enemy. Uh, but there's only, they were only the enemy in so much as anyone who was stuck in their ways was an enemy of the words of Christ. Pharisees were essentially separatists. 
So they were fighting the assimilation with the Roman Empire. And the way they did that was they strictly adhered to Jewish rituals inside and outside the temple. And it was outside the temple that set them apart. The idea that you had to follow the same ideas of washing, of cleansing outside the temple was different from other movements and from the view of other Jews. All that we probably know. But what we probably don't know, and what I was interested to research and find out, uh, was that, as far as I can see, they're actually quite a diverse community. Um, they were really popular with the Jewish population. And they were quite democratic. So, in a lot of ways, I think they probably enjoyed their interactions with Jesus. They enjoyed the debate. They enjoyed the discussion. Because what they're like is the cool and interesting Christians. So if you think about, well, Joe and I, that was urban vision uh, for my daughter that's probably curate. It's the ones who kind of transformed Christianity and made it interesting in this world, make people want to engage, who are getting in there and getting involved in communities. That's what the Pharisees were like. So you can imagine they felt drawn to Jesus, particularly around the social justice stuff. That's why they went and interacted with him. They didn't just turn up for the fight. They turned up because they thought, this kind of connects with some of the stuff we believe about uh, the Jewish uh, community. But as cool as they were, and as popular, and as admired, they still knew who was in and who was out. And Jesus is always about extending the borders. He's always about even wiping out the borders that keep some people out and keep some people in. So his conversation with Nicodemus here and John is all about trying to help Nicodemus to transform the worldview of his Pharisaic community. This is only this is interesting, this is one of only two places in the New Testament in which we find the motive, the idea of being born again. The other places are the epistles, and the only place in the Gospels is here in the third chapter of John, which seems ironic given how dominant that is now church today, the idea of being born again. In both the instances, the Greek is in the plural, so Jesus is always addressing communities, individuals, when he's talking about being born again. So to transform his worldview, Jesus understands that Nicodemus has to grasp he's not in control of his world. So Jesus demands of him a spiritual birth. So he says, do not be astonished that I said to you, you must be born from above. The wind blows where it chooses, and you hear the sound of it, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. What he doesn't give Nicodemus is any rituals. He doesn't give him any standards. He doesn't give him a system. He doesn't give him anything by which he might attain the spiritual birth. He doesn't even tell him to pray for the baptism of the Holy Spirit. He just talks to him about spiritual birth. Uh, and so Nicodemus, I think as most of us would go, well, how can these things be? In other words, well, that doesn't make any sense. To which Jesus, first of all, he pretends to be surprised. I, kind of, I often wonder if Jesus was slightly sarcastic. But he pretends to be surprised that Nicodemus doesn't understand. And then in what I consider one of Jesus' more Job kind of God-meeting-Job moments in terms of the Gospels. He's, he, he's acting very much like the Son of God, like I'm way above you here, you're just not getting it. He basically says to Nicodemus, you're a little bit thick, 
and you're just going to have to trust me on this, which is essentially the last part of Job. You're just going to have to trust me on this. And so what he says is, if I have told you about earthly things, and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you about heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except the one who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. So there we go, that's the kind of trust me statement. So finally that brings us to what we've actually read today in the Gospel. In these these verses, Jesus is asking Nicodemus a question that's not specifically spoken in these verses, and it's this one. Nicodemus, Nicodemus is asking Jesus this question, why should I trust you? To transform my life. That's, that's Nicodemus' question. He turned up because there's something there, but he's not quite sure. Why should I trust you to transform my life? And as part of a larger question from his community view, why would the Pharisees relinquish power that we've so carefully gathered up and nurtured to this new and unknown expression of God? To which Christ's answer is, because there's more for you. There's more for your community, and there's more for the people that you've excluded. All you have to do for that is believe, not in a system, not in a religion, but in letting go of the reins to be born from above. So Jesus is speaking to religious people in the third chapter of John. He's not speaking about conversion. He is telling us that religious commitment to rituals days of attendance, sacraments, leadership structures, intellectual debates, perhaps even a theology, do not equate to faith. The dualities of light, dark, saved, condemned, life and perish that are all through these passages are not about groups of people. They are the fine line that we, as people of faith, walk as believers in the church. How do you even read it? How do you even finish off the sermon? There's words, eh? Um, however you like, really. <laughs> well, thank you. <laughs> Get us to think about something or oh, pose a question. Well, I thought about this, but it was like 10 o'clock last night when I finished it, so uh, <laughs> after a while, I'm not ill. Um, uh, the, thing, the question I had for myself is do the rituals, do the processes, do the structures that we are part of as an Anglican church, do they contribute to this idea of being born in the Spirit or do they stunt our new birth in the Spirit? And if they stunt our new birth in the Spirit, then what can we do about those things? Something like that would be my thought that I would leave with you. Yeah. Kia ora koutou.